can have people just laugh. These guys can just laugh. Yeah. Plants. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, if we're hot mic and rolling, I'll go ahead and get us started. Uh, my name is J.D. Thorne, and I'm the pastor at Point Mallard Parkway Baptist Church over in Priceville. And I preached here last year, so I met a number of you. I think there's a few unfamiliar faces that, uh, that weren't here. Um, but uh, let me pray for us. And uh, the plan is to... Uh, just kind of go through our notes, and we'll see how long that takes. I really have no idea, uh, but don't want to waste your time, so let's go ahead and pray and ask God to bless our time together, and we'll study the book of Revelation together. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this book that is so important. Uh, Lord, you could have just left um, things up in the air for us to guess and just totally trust in you, which would have been fine in your prerogative, but Lord, in your uh, in your sovereignty, you saw it fit to, um, to give a vision to, to John and to write it down so that 2,000 years later on the other side of the world, we would be encouraged that we are on the right side of history and that we are on the winning team and that no matter how broken the world is and no matter what happens in our lives and in this world, uh, Lord, you are ultimately going to right every wrong and reconcile your broken creation to yourself. So we thank you for that promise. Lord, I pray that we, as we study, we would leave here encouraged. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would, um, that your Holy Spirit would just enlighten your, your, the reading of your word this morning and that I would um, treat it uh, with respect and honor and accuracy, uh, Lord, so that we may be encouraged to follow you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so I preached through the book of Revelation uh, Beginning last fall, uh, I finished it about Easter. I finished it actually uh, Revelation 22 on Easter Sunday this, this past year, which was, uh, I didn't plan it out that way. I'm not that creative. Uh, but in God's providence, we landed on Easter Sunday, which was a great way. It was a great Easter message that uh, Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste of the coming resurrection of this world and of, of uh, believers. Uh, so it fit nicely in, into Easter. Um, but uh, so... Going into Revelation, I was full of fear and trepidation because uh, it's just a scary book. And uh, I, my experience with Revelation was simply uh, what I had been taught growing up in a typical small town Southern Baptist church here in Alabama. And it was from one particular perspective. I didn't even know that there were all these different viewpoints of Revelation and different ways to interpret Revelation. And I was just kind of told, this is it. And it, it was kind of from the... Uh, left Behind series point of view, the, what's called uh, premillennial dispensationalism. We'll get to that later. Uh, and from that perspective, I, as I was taught, and there, there was no other way. And uh, kind of got to seminary and saw through some of my classes and professors that there are actually other ways to interpret Revelation, which really just made it all the more uh, difficult to and intimidating to to study and preach through. And I'd never really just sat down and given my uh, just utmost attention and study to this book. I've never taught through it. I taught through parts of it, uh, but never just from start to finish. Uh, and that's the way we do it at our church. I know you guys do is here. We just go through books of the Bible line by line, verse by verse. And Revelation seemed daunting to do that. Um, so before I get going, though, I wanted to find out kind of your background in Revelation. Like, how many of you have read the book of Revelation? Okay, so most everybody. Uh, how many of you have heard, have heard a sermon on the Revelation? What about like a whole sermon series, like walk through Revelation? Okay, 
Um, what about, have you read any, anybody read any books on Revelation, like a commentary or other perspectives? Uh, how many of you have seen crazy videos on YouTube about Revelation? <laughs> yeah, uh, they're, they're entertaining on some level, some, some are not, and you need to stay away from them for the most part. But uh, yeah, that was kind of the same way for me. Uh, I'd had some uh, little exposure, exposure to Revelation, but nothing um, nothing great. But when we went through it as a church, I, I said, I told my, my congregation that I don't want to try to convince you of a particular uh, interpretation or to a particular viewpoint. Uh, my, my hope is that the book of Revelation would encourage us, and I hope that does that this morning. Uh, and that, uh, I, you know, I, I, I wanted to approach the text without any presuppositions, uh, without any of my upbringing. I didn't want to bring any baggage along with it. Uh, with most of the book, books of the Bible, I've studied them, I've read them, uh, and so I, I have some foreknowledge that I'm bringing into it. Uh, with Revelation, I wanted to treat it like we were on a desert island and simply had God's Word in front of us and let God's Word lead us to a, a correct interpretation. And so if that meant, if, if in my study here it led me to something that I brought up against something that I've brought up learning, then, um, then I'm, I'm not going to argue with the text. I'm going to let the text lead me to an interpretation rather than bringing my interpretation to the text and trying to make that fit into Revelation. And so that's what I did uh, through, through these uh, months that we spent in the book. And some things I said up front to my congregation, I'll say to you guys, uh, it is okay for you to disagree with me. Uh, but don't get, don't get angry with me. <laughs> uh, it is sanctifying to disagree, but it is sinful to divide. Uh, I mean, there are things that, that we study that, that are not sinful to divide over. There are some things in Christianity that we need to be united behind uh, that, it, that, it, that, that, that are non-negotiables, that are essential issues to the faith. Your interpretation to Revelation is not one of those. Uh, it is okay for Christians to disagree because ultimately we don't know who's right and who's wrong. You can, you can have a strong conviction about Revelation, and I do, but it would be sinful for God's people to divide over something that is, um, that is uh, an open-handed issue. That's something that it's important, but it's not something that we have to be completely 100% um, together on. Uh, the main part of Revelation we do, that Jesus is coming back. He is coming to restore this broken creation. If we can all just gather around that uh, flag, then we've done good. Now, how he's going to get to that point, there's you know multiple ways that he's going to do that. And at the end of the age, we'll look back and find out who was right, and uh, and and pat that guy on the back and say, "Good job, you were the you were the one guy who figured it out. Uh, the rest of us were just guessing." All right. So, um, you know, uh, once I heard a missionary tell a story. Uh, that when he was coming off the field, and it was one of these areas that was an unreached people group in a country that, I think it was in Southeast Asia, a country that it was illegal to be a Christian. And uh, uh, he, he had ministered with some Christians there in, in a neighboring country, but when he was leaving the airport, he, uh, he asked one of the people, that, one of the Christians that he was going to leave back, he asked them just in passing, hey, what's, what are you guys' favorite Bible, uh, favorite books of the Bible? And to his surprise, the missionary said, Revelation and Daniel. He said, those are our two favorite books. And he asked, he said, well, that's strange. Why, why would that be your favorite book of the Bible? And the missionary, or the Christian rather, said, that because they teach us that in the end, our God wins. 
So think about that from, a, from the perspective of the Christian who can't do what we're doing right now without the government coming in and throwing them in jail. Uh, this book is incredibly encouraging to somebody like that. And that's who this book was written for, for people who are suffering, for people who are under persecution, uh, for people who are in the minority. And you and I as Christians in America, we're in the minority. So this book is for us, and it's helpful for us, but it's so incredibly helpful for many of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted in the world today. So how we're going to attack the book of Revelation, maybe attack is the wrong word, how we're going to approach the book of Revelation is two big ideas, context and text. First half is going to be context, uh, the context of the book, the things that are going to help us arrive to a right interpretation of the text itself. Uh, so we won't be able to read every line, every verse, uh, but pretend like uh, to this morning is going to be just kind of an examination of the forest. Uh, we're going to look at the forest, the big picture of the forest, and we're going to walk through the forest, and we're going to examine some of the big trees, but we won't get to examine every little nook and cranny, every little tiny bush and shrub. There's a lot in Revelation that we just don't have time to examine. Uh, but if there is something that we go across, or if there's a term I use, or a, a question you have about a certain text, then just slip your hand up, and I'll stop, and, and I'll address that uh, if, if you're interested. So this is, I'm going to lecture here, but feel free to butt in and just raise your hand and say, well, what about this? I've always heard that, and so forth. So you have the freedom to do that without retribution. All right, so let's jump right in. Context. Uh, we're going to start off with the author. Who is the author of the book of Revelation? Now, Scripture is ultimately written by God, but He uses human, uh, human authors as transmitters, as those who have received uh, His Word and who write it down. And uh, the very clear, what well, we know from the book itself, that, that the author is John. It very clearly uh, tells us in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1 that John is the author here. Uh, but there's speculation as to who John is. There's really two, um, two different opinions as to who this John is. Uh, most people believe, and I'm in this camp, that, that, it, is Jesus, uh, that it is John, Jesus' youngest disciple, John the disciple, uh, that is the youngest of the twelve disciples and that uh, this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the first three Johns, uh, or the three John um, uh, uh, epistles. And this is the same guy who, after Jesus' resurrection, he, he goes with the other disciples as they disperse Jerusalem. They take the Gospel to the nations, and for the next few decades they are persecuted by the Roman Empire. Uh, John is the only disciple that we know of, church history tells us, that was never executed for his faith. He was never martyred for his faith. Best we can tell, the church history tells us that he died of old age in the city of Ephesus. Uh, but he was persecuted by the Roman Empire and he was actually boiled alive at one point. Uh, so he probably looked horrific at an old age. Um, and uh, he lived beyond, uh, from this boiling and survived, and uh, eventually Rome sent him to this island called Patmos, which is kind of like the uh, Roman version of Alcatraz, this island prison that they would send political prisoners. And so he's there on the island of Patmos, and this is where he receives the, the revelation. Now some are going to argue that this is not John the disciple, but someone who is called John the Elder. 
uh, that John, uh, or it could be someone using the name John as a pseudonym. I don't think that's the case, uh, but that is um, options out there for us. Uh, One reason that people believe that this is not John the disciple is because of the Greek of Revelation. The Greek, when you compare how the Greek was written and spelled and, and all the uh, the the verb tenses and all of that, when you compare it to the Gospel of John and the other three John epistles, it's very different kind of, of, of Greek. And so a lot of people think that's a good reason that that's not John the disciple, but there, there are other reasons why the Greek could be different there. Um, but uh, nonetheless, say we do know this guy who is the author is John, and uh, whether he's the disciple or not the disciple really doesn't matter. Uh, we do know there are some young, early 2nd century church fathers who believed it was John the disciple. Guys like Justin Martyr, Melito, Irenaeus, uh, they all lived within 100 years or so of John, and they all believed it was John the disciple, the, one of Jesus' disciples. So I'm going to go with them in most cases that they, were actually, that they actually knew who it was. So that's the author. We move to the title. Where do we get the title, Revelation? Well, it comes from the, the first word or the second word there in the book of Revelation. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, there in verse 1. Uh, it's not Revelations. Uh, everybody calls it Revelations for some reason. To turn to Revelations chapter 2. It's one revelation. It multiple visions in this revelation, but it is one revelation, meaning uh, God has revealed something to us. And what he has revealed is spelled out here in, in chapter 1. Uh, he says, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, here's the purpose, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So see the transmission, see, the, see how God delivers it to us. It goes from God to his angel then to John. The angel there could be a, an angel. It could be Jesus who reveals himself. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So it goes from God to this angel or through Jesus to John the, uh, the disciple or John the elder. What's the date of the book? The date of the book is very important because the date of the book is going to help you interpret the, um, the, the book. Uh, there are two different interpretations, two uh, beliefs there. Some believe it is in the mid-90s A.D. And I don't mean the mid-1990s, but the mid-90s, the flat-out mid-90s, uh, or the mid-60s A.D. It's one of those two, most likely. Uh, now, if you're a certain perspective, you're, you're going to need the temple to be... Uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'll get to this later, but if you're a preterist... You're going to need it to be mid-60s A.D. because you need the temple to still be standing to make sure your version of, your interpretation of Revelation is accurate uh, because, because of different reasons we'll go over. But whether it was mid-90s or mid-60s, then um, that's going to determine who the emperor was. Either way, you are, if you're a Christian in the mid-60s, you are under heavy persecution by Emperor Nero. And much of, Babel, uh, much of um, Revelation will be written about Nero in your interpretation. If you believe it was in the mid-90s, which I'm in that camp, I believe it was the mid-90s, then it's going to be Emperor Domitian uh, who heavily persecuted the believers in, in the first century. 
and that, that John is writing into a, a scenario there where Domitian is del delivering very difficult persecution on, on the believers. So I, in my studies, I saw more evidence for a mid-90s date on the book, uh, though there's good evidence out there for 60s as well. Uh, I, I fell on that camp in the 90s. The genre of the book is important as well. Anytime you're reading in your Bible, you need to know what genre that you're reading because just as we do today, different genres are read in different ways. Uh, you're going to read poetry and interpret poetry different than you would uh, a magazine or uh, a narrative or a story or nonfiction. You, you read different types of literature in different ways. And Revelation is going to, the genre is going to help interpret the book for us. And Revelation is very, very difficult because it's three genres in one. It's three different types of literature, which makes things really complicated for us. The first type of literature that it is, it's an epistle. Uh, an epistle is a letter, uh, just like Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians, Colossians. An epistle is one of these letters written by the apostles who wrote two specific local churches. And epistles have formulas, they have a greeting, they have a body, they have a set of instructions. It's, it's very cut and dry. It's, you, read, you read it as is. And so the first book, of the Bible, first book of Revelation and the first three books of Revelation fit under that narrative of genre. It's, it's a letter written to specific local churches. Uh, it's also, though, prophetic literature or prophecy. That's the second genre that it is. And so if it's prophecy, you've got books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, who are going to, who, to be prophets who speak to God's people. And a prophet is someone who's a, who's a message carrier. They deliver a message from God to his people. That's what a prophet does. And a prophet really tells two different things. They are foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling, which would be the prediction of future events, Prophets do that, and also forthtelling, which is just when they deliver a message. doesn't have anything to do with the future, uh, but it is a message delivered from, from God to His people. That's what prophets do, and Revelation is a little of both. It's a little bit of foretelling, and it's a little bit of forthtelling. And then the third genre that it also falls under is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. Good luck spelling that. Just do your best. Apocalyptic literature is probably the most difficult type of literature to read in the Bible because of the use of, of different symbols. Often they're bizarre images that are meant to convey truths to us. And apocalyptic literature is very difficult to, to read and interpret. It's books like Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah that we read them and they just don't make sense. You see beasts with horns and flying things with wings and faces, and, and it just doesn't make sense to our brains, but the author is using apocalyptic language to convey a truth. Apocalyptic literature deals with unseen heavenly realities or future realities, and it's the author doing his best to put it into words, things that our earthly minds have never seen, and it's delivered through symbolism. And that, that's, that's, where we, that's where the rubber meets the road with Revelation. How do you interpret these symbols? How do you interpret all of these different images? Um, some of these images are going to be real clear. Some of these images that we're going to see in Revelation 
uh, are actually very simple. They're actually interpreted by Revelation, such as uh, Jesus being portrayed as a lamb. He's called a lamb multiple times throughout the Bible, so we know in Revelation that the lamb is not a real sheep, a little baby sheep. It's, a, it's, a, it's Jesus. It's meant to symbolize Him. In chapter 1, churches are going to be represented by lamps and lampstands. So we're going to see that theme running through Revelation. Anytime you see a lamp or a lampstand, you're going to know that that's referring to the church. Um, Satan is interpreted as a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. It's going to flat out clearly tell us that that, that dragon is Satan. Uh, but some are going to be a lot more difficult. And that's where the disagreements come. How do you, how do you interpret uh, these different kind of images. And what I landed on is that the Bible interprets the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. That the key to interpreting all of these bizarre images in Revelation is the Bible itself, specifically the Old Testament. Because John is writing to a group of people who that's their Bible, the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. They were living the New Testament at the time, but their scriptures was the Old Testament. And so they have knowledge of a lot of different Old Testament images that John is going to use to convey a truth to them, to speak to them. And it's, it's going to serve a couple of different purposes. Not only is it going uh, to be people who know their Old Testament and so they can easily interpret it, but also it's going to be used as kind of a code so that if the Roman Empire gets a hold of the letter then they're not going to know how to interpret it. They don't know the Old Testament. They're just going to see like a work of fiction. You know, what is, what is this letter with all of these dragons? To Christians, they're going to see it. If it would have been straightforward, Rome would have gotten it and said, oh, we got people here who are trying to usurp the empire and not worshiping Emperor Domitian. Uh, but it's written in this kind of apocalyptic code, I think, to protect those Christians uh, and to convey the idea in, in language they would understand, Old Testament language. And that's why we need to know our Old Testament in, in 21st century. That's why the Old Testament is really, really important. It helps us understand Revelation. I think I spent more time in the Old Testament studying this book than I have any, any other book of the Bible. And I'm actually preaching through Leviticus right now. <laughs> and I just there's so much of Revelation that ties back to the Old Testament. So that's the genre. What is the intended audience? Anytime you're reading in your Bible, it's really helpful to know the intended audience and their situation. Now, you and I are the intended audience, obviously, but there's a primary intended audience, and you and I are the secondary intended audience. There's, there's none of these books in the 66 books of the Bible that were written for, sorry, that were written to North American Christians in the 21st century. They were written for us but they were not written to us. Before they were written to you and I, or for you and I, they were written to specific people in specific circumstances. And if you know their circumstances, that helps you apply it to our day today. And so that's why intended audience is going to be helpful. There are really two sets of people here who are the intended audience. Uh, the first is the local church. The local church. It was written to seven specific local churches who are in different situations. They were small local churches like this one, uh, churches who uh, were struggling to, um, to make ends meet, were struggling to live out the gospel in, in their context and loving Jesus, dealing with sin in their midst, dealing with difficult relationships, just like every other church in this city as well. 
And so it's written to them, seven particular local ones, but that, the reason they were written to seven local churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the reason it was written to only seven, there are a lot more churches than seven. There were a lot more than seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven is another symbolic number. Seven is a symbolic number of all or complete. And so this is God's way of saying, I am writing to seven local churches, but in a sense, these seven local churches are representative of all the churches. So the second intended audience is the universal church. And this is where it's so helpful for Christians to have a right understanding of the little c local church and the big c universal church. That if you're a member of one then you must be a member of both to be a biblically faithful Christian. That if I call myself a member of the universal church, then that means as a follower of Christ, I'm going to follow His commands, which necessarily leads me to membership in a little c local church. Uh, You cannot divide and keep those two ideas apart from one another and still be biblically faithful, in my opinion. And so these are the two written... um, to intended audience. We'll get to the map here in a second as to why they're in a certain order. But uh, some believe that the first three chapters are for you know, the seven local churches and then from chapters 4 to 22 are for us you know, in, in the future. Uh, I'm going to argue, though, that Revelation is written for to these local churches to encourage them. And through them, the meaning for us is rooted in the meaning for them. Uh, that you and I will be encouraged as well as we read it. Uh, that God in His sovereignty knew that this letter would be copied and translated to the other side of the globe 2,000 years later for you and I. So this is another key that kind of helped me develop a particular interpretation. Uh, keeping this in mind, who it's written to, Uh, helped me kind of interpret, especially some of the stuff in the later chapters, uh, that it's it's written for all Christians living in the end times. And when I say the end times, I don't mean like, you know, the last 10 or 15 years. In the Bible, the end times is the time from Jesus, in between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. The end times is the second Jesus ascended on that hill and went to heaven, the end times began. And 2,000 years later, you and I are still living in the end times. And so Revelation is for Christians living in that time period between His first and second coming. That's the end times. And it's written to encourage people in that span. And that's the intended audience. Um, Themes. Uh, There are many themes in the book of Revelation. Overall, I would just simply say it's written to encourage faithful endurance uh, for the Christian. Uh, But ultimately, there are, uh, I think I have eight here, themes. Uh, One is that Jesus has conquered Satan through his death on the cross and has ransomed every people uh, from every nation to become a kingdom of priests gladly serving in God's presence. So you're going to see that theme of Jesus conquering Satan. That this is uh, We look around our day today and we think, wow, Satan must be winning. And we're going to see in Revelation a totally different picture. A, a conquering Jesus who speaks a word and his enemies are defeated. Number two, Jesus Christ is present among his churches on earth through his Holy Spirit. And he knows their trials, their triumphs, and their failures. Three, world history 
including its woes and disasters, is firmly in the control of Jesus, the victorious Lamb. See, they were living in a day in the first century, and you and I are living in a day when we would look at the news and look at declining numbers and churches and churches closing doors and ministers morally failing, and we would say, how is God in control of this? And Revelation is going to encourage us and show us kind of behind the veil that God really is in control, and He really is moving things toward its ultimate end. Number four, God is presently restraining His own wrath and His enemies' efforts to destroy the church as He patiently gathers His redeemed people through the testimony that His suffering people proclaim as He patiently gathers His redeemed people through the testimony that His suffering people proclaim about Jesus. So He's withholding wrath. Uh, It is... It is, a, it is a dam that is ready to burst at any moment, and we're going to see uh, that happening in Revelation. Number five, that present disasters such as war, drought, famine, epidemic diseases, whatever the case may be, though limited in scope by God's restraint, are foreshadows and warnings of escalating judgments to come. So judgments are coming, but these are just little tastes of what is to come. Number six, by maintaining their faithful testimony to to the death, believers in Jesus will conquer both the dragon and the beast. We'll get to who they are later on. The martyr's victory, now hidden, will be manifest in their vindication at Christ's return. Number seven, Satan attacks the church's perseverance and purity through violent persecution, through deceptive teaching, and through affluence and sensual pleasure. The things that this world loves, the things that, that are attractive to all of us in this room. Um, Satan attacks the church using these things. And then eight, at the end of the age, the church's opponents will, will intensify persecution, but Jesus will defeat and destroy all His enemies. The old, and the old heaven and earth, stained by sin and suffering, will be replaced by a new heaven and earth, and the church will be presented as a pure bride to her husband, the Lamb. Schools of interpretation. Four different views, four different ways, four different lens caps to put on to look at this book. And depending on which one you look at will, will skew your interpretation. Uh, so if I have four different colored glasses up here, one is yellow, green, blue, red, whichever glasses you put on will tint everything you see a certain way. If I put on red glasses, everything's going to be red. That's going to be red. That's going to be red. You're going to be red. That's going to be red. And everything will be skewed a certain way. Uh, the different methods of interpretation, which is called hermeneutics, uh, they, these are going to skew the way you look at, uh, look at Revelation. And so if you look at it one way, it's going to look a certain way, and so on. So let me give you the four main ways people look at Revelation, and they necessarily lead you to a certain interpretation. First is historicism, the historicist view of Revelation. If I'm a historicist, that means I'm going to see Revelation as symbolizing a sequence of world events throughout the history of the church. So if you look at that chart, uh, you've got to have charts when you look at Revelation. Otherwise, what fun would that be? 
Uh, there's all sorts of charts for Revelation. I get this one from the ESV Study Bible, which is a great study Bible, my favorite. Uh, the historicist school of, of interpretation. The top portion there, the top line is Revelation from start to finish, from left to right. The first three chapters being the first seven churches. Those in the historicist school would correspond with the first century churches. That those seven churches that are written to in the first three uh, chapters are symbolic of all churches who live in the first century. But then when you get to from chapters 4 through 19, those are going to go along with human history uh, throughout the Reformation and throughout modern churches and things like that leading up into the millennium and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So the historicist sees the events of Revelation as symbols of things that are actually happening in their day. They're going to see Revelation as a sequence of events that parallels human history or church history history. This is going to be, this came out primarily out of the Protestant Revolution, about a Reformation, about 500 years ago. Uh, this was not a popular way of looking at Revelation until in the scope of human history just recently, uh, that they would read Revelation and that they would read the headlines and connect the dots. And there are a lot of people who interpret Revelation this way as historicists. They will look at the newspaper or look at what's going on in the Middle East or look at who's leading the UN or who the U.S. president is and they'll kind of make that correspond with something in Revelation and they'll see Revelation as just this code that's revealing human history to us. Um, so that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And, and a lot of good things came out of the Protestant Reformation. This was not one of them. <laughs> uh, the, the major problem with historicism is that it's completely subjective depending on which era you live in. If I lived in the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers, they saw everything that was going on in Western Europe, which was a crazy time to be alive in, the, in those days, uh, as events in Revelation. They saw the Pope as the Antichrist. They saw uh, the harlot of Babylon in Revelation 17 as the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they they uh, interpreted their you know, specific events, they interpreted Revelation, rather, using their, the headlines of their day. And if you live in the 21st century, you'll read Revelation and you'll put Trump in there. You'll put Obama in there somewhere and you'll stick the, uh, you know, the uh, Saudi Arabia or Iran or Iraq or whatever. You'll, you'll stick today's headlines into Revelation. And that is a dangerous way to read the Bible. Uh, to read the headlines and let the headlines of today interpret our Scripture. It's completely subjective in, in that way. Another problem with reading Revelation this way is that it assumes that Revelation is written in chronological order, which I'm going to argue that it's not. I'm going to argue that Revelation is written in cycles or uh, different sequences. Uh, Revelation is going to sound, as we walk through it, you're going to see it sounds like we've already been here before, and that's because it's written in cycles. It recapitulates itself. It's going to tell the same story from different perspectives. The Revelation's not going to be the way Western thinkers think, start, middle, finish. It's going to be start, finish, start again, finish, start again, finish, and so on. Second way to look at this book is through the preterist view, and I've already covered a little bit of the preterist view. Preterism sees the events of Revelation as occurring completely in the first century. 
um, more specifically up until 70 AD. That's why they have to hold to an early mid-60s uh, authorship or writing of the book because the temple has to be around for their version of Revelation to be true. So they're going to look at these, uh, uh, these images, these apocalyptic images, and they're going to see the Roman Empire uh, and the demand for emperor worship in the first century to correspond with the events of Revelation. Uh, when John opens the book in chapter 1 with the things that must soon take place, the preterist takes that literally and says, really soon, the things that must take place, like that year, uh, those, those events happening there. Uh, now, some of the, um, for, for instance, Eusebius, uh, early church father, he wrote from a preterist perspective about 300 A.D., so this is a pretty old way of looking at Revelation. Uh, Eusebius was a preterist. Uh, fell out of favor during the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. Uh, actually made kind of a comeback in the 19th century because of a, a book called Young's Literal Translation, uh, translation of the Bible that, that translated from that, that type of perspective. So back in the 19th century, it's kind of fallen out of favor recently. The, the, the strength of the preterist, and I'll give the preterist credit here, is that I like the emphasis of them looking at their intended audience. Uh, that that they're, they're keeping in mind, this is not written for 21st century Christians. This is written for 1st century Christians. But the problem with that is I think they take it too far. I think in doing so, they limit the application of Revelation to you and I. And they totally detach it from, from the first, or they keep it in the first century so much that it detaches its meaning for you and I. Now, that's the strength of preterism. A weakness of preterism is that uh, full preterism insists that every prophecy and promise in the New Testament was fulfilled by the New Testament time period, which means that it has to deny Jesus' future bodily resurrection. It has to deny the physical resurrection of all believers at the end of the age. And it has to deny the physical renewal of heaven and earth because all those are in Revelation. And so that full preterism, the consistent full preterist, has to deny a physical resurrection, which does not jive with the rest of New Testament Orthodox teaching. So... That led to what is called partial preterism. A partial preterist is someone who, who says, okay, I see the majority of Revelation is happening in the first century, but there are select things that are going to happen in the future. So that's the chart there on, on your notes. Um, the partial preterist school, I believe the full preterist is probably not something a biblically faithful Christian can in good conscience and here too, uh, but a partial preterist. Yes, sir? Oh, sorry. Uh, yep. Would you say he was full or partial? I don't know. I don't know. But a partial preterist is, I would say, within the realms of, uh, of biblical faithfulness, though I do not adhere to it. Uh, but I, I do not think a, a biblically faithful Christian can adhere to full preterism uh, because of the denial of the resurrection. So you see how, it, how a preterist, uh, they're going to they're gonna attract chapters 1 through 3 with first century churches. When you get from chapters 4 to 11, they're going to track along with Jerusalem's fall in 70 A.D. Then in chapters 12 through 19, they're going to see that as the fall of Rome or the fall of, of, um, 
of first century Judaism, which is depends. There's a lot of different schools in partial preterism. Uh, and then you get to the millennium. That's going to be a picture of the Reformation and modern church, and then then the second coming of Christ. All right. So that's preterism. Uh, futurism, number three. This is the the most commonly held in our day. Uh, this is the one that's most popular. That I would say, maybe ninety percent of Christians. Maybe not that high. Most Christians in our day adhere to. Uh, thanks, thanks to primary reason futurist is the method of interpretation is um, a few reasons. Pro- probably because of Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth in the 1970s. Anybody read that? Anybody heard of it? Okay, heard of it? Yeah, I would just recommend hearing it. You don't have to read it. Uh, Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth got everybody paranoid about the rapture and planes falling out of the sky. Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary and a couple of different seminaries teach strictly from a futurist perspective, uh, and so that they're going to influence the teachers and, and the preachers and pastors. Um, the Left Behind series, how many of you have read that or seen the James Cameron movie? Read it or seen it? Seen it? Anybody read all like 2,700 books in there? Yeah, they they were supposed to make three, and they did so well, or maybe just two. They but it did so well, they just kept adding on, and they made like eight or nine. Uh, that's that's how they make money in Christian. You you just ride that thing until until you until nobody buys it anymore. But, um, so that that kind of led where we are now to a futurist perspective. So uh, the futurist sees uh, sees the events of chapters four through twenty two as happening sometime in our future, in our future. Not, not their future of the first century, but in our future. Like, it hasn't happened yet. Like, when you get to chapter 4, like, there's a span of at least 2,000 years between chapters 3 and chapter 4 if you're a futurist. Uh, this includes a rapture, which is a word you will not find in Revelation. I, I had... Uh, I had um, uh, halfway through the, my teaching in Revelation, I had a lady at our church ask when I was going to get to Revelation, uh, when I was going to teach about the rapture. And I said, as soon as it comes up in the text, I will cover it. And it never came up in the text. so <clears throat> She never did. No, I think she got the idea. I uh, know. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's going to be a, a rapture. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation, which is another term not found in Revelation. Although you can read into it and try to take Daniel and combine them together to get a seven-year tribulation. Uh, and that's going to be followed by a millennium, a 1,000-year a reign of Christ uh, where He rules on earth like He comes down to earth and He sits on a throne in Jerusalem for a 1,000 years and rules over this earth, and which leads up to a final resurrection and the inauguration of God's ultimate kingdom. And we'll cover that when we get into the millennium. The strength of futurists, and I'll give it to, to them here, that they emphasize a literal reading of the text, which is, when in doubt, take the Bible at face value. When, when, when you're coming up to a passage that you just don't know how to interpret it, just interpret it literally. Um, but, with, but again, with apocalyptic literature, uh, you can interpret everything literally with apocalyptic literature. Uh, if it's meant to be an image then, or, or a symbol, then take it as a symbol. Uh, when Jesus says He is a door... Or bread doesn't take that literal. Those are images. He, he's saying that I'm a door. I'm a way to God. Uh, when he says he's bread, it doesn't mean you can come up and take a bite out of him and put bread on him. He or put butter on him. Uh, it means he is the sustainer of life. He gives us food, nourishment for our lives. And so, 
the Bible's full of imagery that we must use, but uh, I believe the futurist reads too literally. A uh, weakness of the of futurist is that, uh, you know, how, and this was my problem as a young person reading Revelation, is I would be told that from four on is for some time in the future, and I'm thinking, well, how, why, what good would this do for the seven churches that this was written to? Like they're reading this letter written to them, and they would say, all right, well, chapter 4 is going to happen, you know, 2,300 years from now, but let's go ahead and read this. Now, they wouldn't know that, obviously, but it's kind of odd that God would give something, write something directly to them that was, had nothing to do with them. Um, it forces the modern-day reader to reinterpret these apocalyptic images uh, and to draw out of first-century context and make them fit in modern times. And so if you read Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, uh, he's going to see a cobra helicopter in chapter 9. Uh, and so you've got you to you read Revelation and use these first century images and then put them into the 21st century. And even since the 1970s, warfare has changed. So now we've got to see drones in there. We've got to see you know, cyber warfare. And, I mean, you've got to interpret it, Revelation by, by the time you live in, which is, again, dangerous. There are two schools of thought in futurism. You've got historical premillennialism, which is if I had to choose one, I would, I would choose that one, versus dispensational futurism or dispensational premillennialism. And I'm not going to go too deeply into those two different schools. Those would take hours to, to delineate as well. Uh, historical premillennialism was held by some of the early church fathers, like in the second century. They, they were historical premillennialists, uh, Polycarp, um, guys like that, uh, and they, they knew John. So if I had to bank my, or put, put a stake on one of these, uh, I would probably put myself in the historical premillennialism camp if I were uh, limited to the futurism. Uh, dispensational premillennialism has to do with different dispensations, different eras of church history, and, and again, that's, that's a bigger topic for a different day. Uh, so that's futurism in a nutshell. Idealism, and this is kind of the one I landed on uh, that I, I kind of interpret Revelation through. And through this lens, the events in Revelation are not meant to predict or describe historical events, but instead are meant to use Old Testament images to symbolize the ongoing struggle that all Christians living in the church age must endure until Christ returns. All right, so idealism says that the key to understanding all these images is the Old Testament, like I said earlier. Uh, and I had somebody not push back, but they were asking me as I was going through this book and I was teaching that these images are from the Old Testament and they mean this. And, and, I, and the guy said, well, you know, your way of looking at Revelation, you can just, if it's symbolic, then... If it's not literal and it's symbolic, I mean, you can just make anything up and symbolize it. I mean, it can be this can symbolize that, this can symbolize that, just whatever you want, right? And I said, no, you don't get to pick and choose what these symbols represent. The Old Testament tells you what they represent. Uh, John is writing with the knowledge of the Old Testament to people who had the knowledge of the Old Testament. And so these symbols and images and these phrases that he's going to use are going to take their minds to the Old Testament so they can then interpret it. And so I think the key to understanding what Revelation means is found in that idea, that the Old Testament is the key to unlock what Revelation is trying to say. 
And that, that just came out of, that, that's not what I was raised in. That came out of probably in seminary when I was taught that one of the methods of biblical interpretation, one of the, the methods of her, biblical hermeneutics is that Scripture interprets Scripture. That if you find something in Scripture that's difficult to understand, then God has placed other teachings in the Scripture to help you interpret that. And that's what I believe Revelation is, and that's, that's what I use the Old Testament as my key, that Old Testament helps us determine what Revelation is. Not what's going on at the UN, not what's going on with our military, not what's going on in the Middle East, not what's going on in Israel. Uh, it was fun to have conversations with some of my church members as, as uh, we moved our embassy over to Israel this past, uh, this past spring. Uh, and I'm preaching through that, and they're like, yeah, it's great, this is part of Revelation, right? And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, not at all. I don't see that anywhere in there. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's just going to mess with, with, with our minds the way we look at Revelation differently. So you can see the chart there. Revelation is, is simply, um, you know, that the first three chapters are simply letters to seven specific local churches. And then when you get into chapters four all the way up through the millennium, the, those are just describing what it's like to live in the church age as a Christian. And this is going to be for a first century Christian or a 21st century. Revelation is going to be just a kind of a cycle of events of what the daily life of a Christian is going to be like for us in America, 21st century, and for them in the first century as well. And then when you get to chapters 21 and 22, you see the second coming of Christ and everything made new. All right, well, let's take a break. Uh, Ten-minute bathroom break. Um, uh, is it too? Are we doing lunch? Is it too early for that? No, we're doing lunch at twelve. Twelve. Okay, so I got time then. Uh, okay, and then we will hit the text at that point. Uh, so I think I'm half. Actually, I'm not halfway through. Uh, but we'll probably do majority of of the book before lunch, and then probably just a little after. So that'll. that'll I think that's how it'll work. Okay. So break time. <laughs>